So today we come back to this theme that we're talking about here in this uh, part of the year of 2023, and we're concentrating on that first one, uh, deeper, wider, higher. So the deeper has to do with digging deeper into some of the stories of the Bible. And we've looked at a bunch of Old Testament characters, and now until the end of July, maybe the middle of August, we'll look at some of the New Testament stories, such as the one that I just read for us a few moments ago. So I would like to show you um, a quote by Emily Dickinson. I think it's very instrumental in us understanding some of the stories we're going to look at. Tell the truth, but tell it slant, she says. Now what she means by that is there is no direct way to tell a story without also bringing the personality of the author into the story. So I don't know about you, but when we think about the history of our nation, here we are, 4th of July weekend, or the history of other nations. When I was young, I used to think that stories were true, sort of kind of like Walter Cronkite, that's the way it was on July the 2nd, 1969, or whatever. But I think as we've grown older, we understand that every story is told with a slant to it. So you can take the same event and you can turn on three or four different news channels and you'll see a different perspective on the same event. Now that's not only true in our country, but that's true in all countries. And in fact, that is true throughout human history. That when stories are told, there are particular viewpoints that are emphasized and other viewpoints that are often ignored. And so we, first of all, sit up and understand that we're hearing a curated story that is through the particular lens of a particular uh, agenda at times or purpose or objective. So here we are understanding that there's no such thing as a pure history. What you, what you undertake when you try to understand history is take the multiple viewpoints and try to bring together these facts and see how they come together for a better understanding. Well, I thought of a song uh, by Joni Mitchell. Anybody remember Joni Mitchell? Back in 1969, um, in the height of the days of the Vietnam War, uh, she wrote a song called Both Sides Now. Anybody remember that song, Both Sides Now? Well, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to see that the parable of the talents that we just read can be viewpoint from both sides. Okay, hang on to that. So here's the last line in Joni Mitchell's song. She says, I've looked at life from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow, it's life's illusions I recall. I really don't know life at all. Now, if you know a little bit about her background, Joni Mitchell uh, got pregnant at a very young age, had to give her child away, uh, had a hard upbringing. Uh, she was an individual that uh, had to learn, in spite of some health issues, how to take her talent to the next level. And she became an icon with some of the songs that she wrote. For those of you who are younger, you'll have to go back and look at Wikipedia to see who Joni Mitchell is and her role in the late 60s and early 70s. But here is a very important point that I think we all need to understand. 
It's life's illusions, I recall. I really don't know life at all. I don't know the full and accompanying story of what is entailed in uh, life. But as we get older, we see things through different perspectives than we did when we were younger. And that's a great thing because it brings to us a more holistic understanding of life. So when we look at a story, yes, even in the Bible, we have to understand the perspective that is being told and who is telling it. You know, stories are always dependent upon several things. Who is telling the story? Um, who is hearing the story? What's the creative reimagining of the story for people that are coming later? And that is really true uh, with the parable of the talents. And so this particular story is told by Jesus on an occasion where he is about to die. This is uh, a set of teachings in Matthew 24 and 25, right before he's going to be arrested and before he dies upon the cross. Jesus, as this prolific storyteller, was an individual that often used a type of teaching technique called a parable. Now, a parable has two words in the original language. Para, meaning alongside of, balo, meaning to throw. That is, a parable is something that you throw alongside of something else to bring illumination and understanding to a particular topic. And what we find is Jesus employed parables all the time, and the crowd often heard these stories that were often real to life. Uh, they were stories that came right out of their life setting. And what we find is that Jesus teaches very subtly, and sometimes he teaches very aggressively through these parables. And I think that's what's happening in this particular parable of the talents. I like scholar Amy Jill Levine. She talks about these short stories of Jesus called parables. And this is what she says. Down through the centuries, starting with the gospel writers themselves, the parables have been allegorized, moralized, and otherwise tamed into platitudes such as God loves us or be nice. She goes on and says, if we stop with the easy lessons, good as though, good though they may be, we lose the way Jesus' first followers would have heard the parables and we lose the genius of Jesus' teaching. So Amy Jill Levine, a scholar at Vanderbilt, uh, says the concern is not to dismiss certain interpretations, but not to come up short with other angles or slants by which we can understand some of these stories. So having said that, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the point of parables. A parable in some ways illumines an understanding about something, but at the same time, it hides the truth from other people who are not genuine in their understanding of the story. So Jesus told parables, in some cases, to help people who wanted to see, see. He told these parables sometimes to bring kind of a shade down so that other people would not see with clarity. So it's working a double duty. Now, when I was in seminary, my uh, profs used to say, look for the one point of a parable. It only makes one point. Now, all these uh, years later, after all these years of studying the teachings of Jesus, I don't think that's right. 
It might make a main point, yes, but you have to look at life from both sides now. It depends upon which angle you're looking at the parable. And I think a parable can have multiple applications because in life, we all need side-by-side comparisons to our life, not necessarily the lives of someone else that we uh, don't know uh, what their circumstances are. The main ingredient to keep in mind about parables, though, is it is teaching us something about the way the kingdom of God works within the kingdoms of men. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. How does the kingdom of God interact with the kingdoms of this world? And let's not settle for trite or easy interpretations or applications. What we need to do is move deeper into it. And the point of the parable, it has often been said, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay, that's good. But what if we flip that? What if we we slant that and say that it is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning? In other words, this parable can be applied on a variety of different levels depending upon whose eyes you are looking through. Okay? With that as a backdrop, let's take a look at the parable of uh, the talents. So let's set the scene for a moment. The Olivet Discourse has often been interpreted in a way to say, this is talking about the end times. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time in your life, uh, you'll know that um, one of the things that people love is, what does the Bible tell us about the future? How does it predict the future? And of course, people make different types of predictions based upon that. Uh, What we found is they've never come true in terms of when Jesus is going to return and set up his kingdom, so on and so forth. But what we do understand is that it is something that Jesus is concerned about. So he begins this set of teachings in chapter 24 of Matthew, and he's anticipating something. And what he is anticipating is the Jewish people rebelling against the Roman occupiers. And the Roman Empire will squash that revolution and that uprising by destroying the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So the Jewish revolution began in 66 AD. It culminated in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And here Jesus is talking in anticipation of that. So much of what's in the Olivet Discourse is talking about how to sit up straight and pay attention to what is happening around you. Now with that in mind, he tells this story about the talents. Now a talent is basically a Greek monetary value. So if you have a study Bible, it'll say something like this. Uh, Five talents, two talents, or one talent. Uh, A talent was worth, listen, 20 years of a day laborer's wage. Okay, so take the calculator out in your head. How much money do you make in 20 years' time? Okay, that'll be different for everybody in the room. Multiply that by two or five. So you're talking about a massive amount of money, all right? So the parable is saying there is this business guy who has all of this money. And he needs stewards to manage his money, and he calls them in, and he gives 
one of them five talents. Okay, so five times 20, that's a hundred years of a common day laborer's wage. A hundred years worth of money. The next one comes in, he gives two talents and one talent. Now, with that in mind, he says, I want you to go out and I want you to maximize the profit on the amount of money that I have given to you. So two of them go out and they do that. They double his money. So the first one comes back and he brings back 10 talents. 10. 10 talents. Now, you can imagine 200 years worth of income. And the same goes with the others, except the last guy. The last guy comes back and he says, here, here's your bag of money that you gave me. Okay? And then the business guy blows up, right? Why didn't you at least put it in the bank and earn interest? Get out of here, you worthless servant. Get lost. Get lost. Go into where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a figure of speech of regret or shame or guilt that he didn't do a better job. Now, there are two interpretations, usually, of this parable. The usual interpretation is, okay, God is like the business guy. And he gives to all of us certain talents and gifts that we're to put into use. So he gives to some of you musical abilities. He gives some of you business abilities. He gives some of you teaching abilities. And the list could go on. Take it. Use it. Invest it. Multiply it. And God will be pleased, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the usual interpretation of this parable. And if you don't take what God has given you, and you don't develop it, there's consequences. God's going to hold you responsible for this, and uh, you know the weeping and gnashing of teeth is such that you're going to live to regret that you didn't do a better job on finding your gifts and putting them into play and so forth. Well... The first two servants are considered faithful. The third servant should have known better, but he's afraid. He's afraid of this guy. So when you look at this particular parable through that lens, through that slant, that the business guy is God and the servants are people like you and me, we've been given gifts and we are to develop them and improve them and use them. There's only one problem. If that is the slant of this particular parable, what does that make God look like? A cruel businessman. God is this individual that is to get as much as he can out of you, and if he doesn't, then he's going to hold you responsible for it, and you will be sorry. But let's look at this parable from both sides now. We flip it, and let's understand it through a different angle. Not through the angle of the business guy being God, but what if the businessman is the empire, the Caesars and the Herods of this world that expect the people to keep them rich and keep pushing money to the top and leaving the commoners behind? What would this parable look like if we look through that lens? Well, we all know that in the ancient world of the New Testament, 
The way people doubled their wealth in the ancient world was to engage in predatory lending. So people would get into some financial straits, and a guy who has the money would come and bail them out. And if they couldn't hold true on the repayment of that loan, their land was taken away from them. And so what we find is that the business guy is this shrewd guy that puts people in a precarious situation where they've fallen on hard straits, and because they have fallen on hard straits, they need a little bit of help to continue to provide for their family. But if they fall short, then that business guy is going to take their land and their family's uh, legacy of that land away from them, and they will continue to get richer and richer. And so in the day of Jesus, the economy was rigged. It was rigged in favor of the wealthiest in society, the roughly 1% to 2% that could own massive amounts of land because people were indebted to them. And for such a small percentage of the population that keeps having all the wealth pushed to the top, that leaves behind people, families, unable to farm their land and put food on their table. Are you getting the picture here? So what if the business guy is not God in the parable? What if the business guy represents Caesar, represents the Herods of the New Testament that want to build palaces, that want to build uh, these monuments to themselves? So one stop that we had in our travel through Europe was uh, Versailles in France. And Versailles was this massive, massive palace that had massive acreage of all kinds of gardens, and everything was covered in gold. But the unique thing about Versailles was the whole thing was a monument to Louis XIV. Because in every picture, every mural that you see in the whole place, he was in the center of it, okay? So you walk through this, and you see all of these murals, and you see all of these things where Louis XIV, he was concerned about always the people looking up to him, who invite people in, and he'd allow them to watch him play pool. Big, you know, and then when he was tired of it, people would be begging just for the opportunity to get the pool stick on Louis XIV's table and to hit a ball. So here is an illustration of the commoner in France was living just trying to put, their, uh, put the financial ends together so that they could provide for their family. But Louis XIV kept wanting more and more and more money so that he could build this fabulous palace that would bring in millions of visitors every year and walk through and see the beauty of it. And finally, the French people got tired of it and felt that it was time to replace him because he was constantly using them as a predatory ruler. That is kind of the image we have in the New Testament. And that's why Jesus will always come on behalf of those who have been left behind. I like what T. Wilson Dixon says in his book called The Good uh, News, The Green Good News. While the parable asks us to compare this situation of the master to the benefits of hard work, 
The comparison is not one of similarity, but profound difference. These stories serve to point towards structures of power that organize the material world of their hearers and shape their hearts. In other words, this is something that would resonate with the hearers because they are the individuals that have been left behind through this predatory type of business practices. So what if the picture of God is not found in the businessman? But maybe, just maybe, the picture is found through that third servant. Here is this third servant that takes one bag of gold, he buries it, and then brings it back and gives it back to the the master. What if the master, like the power brokers of all civilizations, of all nations, of all ages, is people that's concerned only about one thing, not the people, but the profit, right? That's the only thing they're concerned about, maximum profit. What if the point of the parable is this third servant is refusing to exploit other people because he feels it is wrong. What if he takes that bag of gold, buries it into the ground, and says, I'll just keep it and I'll take it back to him, but I absolutely refuse to participate in this type of exploitation of people that is going to have their wealth taken from them and given to this business guy. And what if the third servant is refusing to participate in the practices of the master because he knows in his heart it is wrong. It's wrong to do that to other people. Well, you can look at the parable from both sides now. However, however, when you read on in Matthew chapter 25, there's another parable. And the parable that follows this one is called the parable of the sheep and the goats. I'll just read a couple of lines from it, because I think it helps us to understand how to interpret this story. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did you see... Uh, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to eat? And the king will reply, whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In other words, you took care of people who couldn't take care of themselves. Then the second group steps up in this story. And the second group um, on the left are called goats. And he says, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, a lot of hyperbole here, talking about his condemnation of those who was only concerned about squeezing every dime for their own profit. And he says, you didn't give me anything to eat or to drink or clothe me. And then they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirst? And it's a parallel type of story. 
uh, thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you. He said, whenever you did not do for the, one of, uh, the least of these, you did not do to me. Do you see? When you take the two parables and put them together, you're able to see maybe, just maybe, the parable of the talents or bags of gold is not to be seen through the eyes of the master upon his servants. But maybe this third servant who looks at his master that's taking advantage of people so he can get richer, and he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that to my fellow citizens. I'm not going to do that to my brothers and sisters and neighbors. In other words, maybe the third servant, and again, this is all speculation. This is what you do with the parables of Jesus. Go, oh, maybe that is the point of the parable. Now, is, is it wrong then to find your talents and develop them and put them to use? No, that's a wonderful thing, right? But is there another point to the parable that we want to overlook or another point of the parable that we would rather ignore? So all you have to do is say, wait a minute, when I read a story of Jesus in the format of a parable, I've got to look at the parable from both sides. Does that make sense? You can't look at the parable through one particular lens because you might walk away with a simplistic application and not the deeper application that Jesus is trying to get at. So the tension of the story is this, basically. If God is the businessman, then it's showing that God is hard to please. And no matter what you do, he wants more out of you. How many people often feel like that? Is God ever okay with who I am and the way he's made me, with my skill set? Or is he always pushing for more because he is never satisfied? That is a difficult way to live, isn't it? To think that God is always chasing you down and wanting to hold you in, uh, in a way that makes you feel guilt and shame. I like this second interpretation because that's what Jesus talks about so much in his teachings. Helping those who can't help themselves. And these are the individuals that Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You're the ones that have met the idea of what the kingdom of God is all about. So the question might be, why would Jesus bury a coin Maybe because he refused to engage in the type of things that would bring harm to other people. Maybe burying a coin is an act of defiance. Maybe it's an act of resistance. Maybe he is saying there is a better way to structure the world than the way the world usually works. And with that in mind, what we find is he is basically trying to push back on the predatory practices of things like extortion, fraud, excessive tax collection, lending money at illegal rates of interest, those type of things that left his Jewish people in a position of not even being able to put meals on the table for their family. So how do we apply this? Maybe what we do is we understand that in our efforts to get ahead in life, there's nothing wrong with that, but let's do it honestly And let's do it compassionately, not stepping up and over the backs of other people to get ahead. Because I think, ultimately, we must all treat each other 
as what we are, brothers and sisters in the human family. We need to care for people in that way. And when we do, their benefit is our benefit too. Does that make sense? Okay. Rather than just a few, we understand the whole. So many of the parables of Jesus serve to unveil the unjust order that surrounds him and us. And we often miss this aspect because we are often trained to identify with the power and success of certain people as a virtue rather than saying, yes, they're successful, but what did they do to get there? Jesus initiates a new order where virtue is built on sacrifice and surrender to the common good. So we have dove deeper into one of the teachings of Jesus. We're not going to look at all his parables because there's dozens and dozens of them. But this one was used to encourage you to understand that even what you think might be a failure in your own eyes is not necessarily a failure in God's eyes because you have stood with this idea of helping other people become all that they need to become, not just a stepping stone for advancement or for riches. Stand with me and we'll close in prayer, please. What Jesus had to offer on that night long ago was his true and broken self. And maybe, Lord, that's the best thing that we have to offer to other people. We take away the masks that we wear and we show other people just who we are and we realize that they might not be impressed, but you are. You have made us who we are. You have put us in places that we need to understand often has challenges. But if we can hold our character, if we can hold the virtue of doing things out of love, you are well pleased. And so as we close this time together, may we anticipate that day when we will stand before you and we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you coming. Glad to have you back. It's great to see all of you. Have a good day.